Good morning. My name is Skeet. I'm a guy with a Bible. And I'm glad to be here. Can you guys hear me well? All right, good. Um, I'm glad to be here uh, for a few reasons. One is I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to. I was in uh, Nashville this last week for the better part of it and uh, was hoping to get home Friday afternoon and found out that that wasn't going to happen. They weren't landing anything at the airport, and if by some miracle I made my way to the Houston airport, I would not be making my way to Tomball. So I landed yesterday morning and was able to navigate um, an end around uh, to get past Spring Creek. was also thankful to find Spring Creek passable on 249 uh, this morning. So um, I'm excited to be here with you. I'm thankful that you came uh, to worship together with our church family. I know that it wasn't easy getting here. Some of you had to pack up the family kayak and, and row your way here. So thanks for coming. I also want to note that a lot of uh, volunteers came up yesterday uh, to clear out uh, from a little water that got in. I say a little, I wasn't here. I hear it was a lot, uh, not as much as the last flood. I guess we've had two floods of the centuries in the same month. And so um, we had a, a team of dedicated people come and serve you by cleaning and ripping the new carpet out. Uh, so we can put even newer carpet in. We like to keep things fresh. Um, given the sacrifices that you made to get here, the inconveniences, and the hard work of our team that came up yesterday uh, to prepare things so that we could gather for worship, I felt like the sermon needed to be good and needed to give you something. And so I want to give you a big promise as we start today. Here's the big promise. Um, you will know without a shadow of a doubt God's will for your life when you leave today. That's that's big promise. And I'm going to go further than that and say, uh, before we close the first five minutes of this sermon, you will know without a shadow of a doubt God's will for your life. Now that's big because a lot of times we wrestle with that question. It's particularly when we have to make big decisions, right? Uh, should I take this job or that job or should I stay put? And if I take that job and we relocate to that city, what Town should we, what area of the city should we move into? What house should we buy? What neighborhood should we live in? So these are big questions. And even questions like what house should we buy really shape the trajectory of our lives. When Leisha and I moved to Tomball back in 2007, uh, we had two choices. Uh, we were considering even either living in the Tomball area or the kind of humble Kingwood area. And, and truthfully, when you, when you looked at it, um, what we could buy for our money was comparable um, neighborhoods were similar, and we chose to land in Tomball. And, and truthfully, that's shaped the trajectory of our lives in ways that we didn't expect or even could have predicted. And so some of those questions are big, and we wrestle with it in those moments. I think if we dig into the Scriptures today, we're going to find God answering the question, what is your will for my life, differently than what most of us attempt to do when we're facing those decisions. So I want you to open your Bible in for, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with me. We're continuing kind of our church's walk through the book of 1 Thessalonians, this letter in which Paul is, encourages the church to be steadfast. So we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 8 together. The Scriptures begin in this way, Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in the holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So out of the gates, we want you to to get a sense of of the content that we're going to cover today. And if you've got little ones with you and you're not ready for that conversation, we do have children's church going on. We're going to handle things tactfully. My nine-year-old was with us here in the first service, but I want to give you a chance uh, to make that call if you want to. When you begin at at the general sense, what is God's will for my life? Well, the Bible answers that quite plainly. Because God's will for you is this, your sanctification. That's God's will for your life, is that you would be sanctified. If you belong to Jesus, it's God's intention, desire, and working in you for you to be sanctified. Now, the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be sanctified? Because last I checked, I haven't read that word in the newspaper frequently. I don't see it on CNN. I'm certain it's not on CNN, in fact. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Well, if we were to jump into a Greek dictionary, we would find that the word used here is the same root word of the word holy, and it literally means to make holy. Well, well, that was really helpful, wasn't it? Um, So we did what I hate when dictionaries do, and they define a word using the word as if that made it any clearer. And we just did that. We, we took a church term, right? And we defined it with another church term. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Well, it means to be holy. Well, that cleared it up. See, the problem is that the word holy, the way it's used culturally, doesn't help us understand what it really means either. We might get excited and say holy mackerel or something else, or we might call someone who's judgmental a holier than thou, or someone who gets really excited at church a holy roller. And none of those do anything to help us understand what the word means. So when the Bible uses the word holy, what does it mean? Well, interesting, if you trace both Hebrew and Greek terms, uh, the word holy is used 864 times in the Bible in some form or variant. It could be consecrate, holy, or saints. But the root word, this idea of being holy, and what that functionally means is that you really can't read your Bible more than about 1.4 pages and run it and not see this term or idea. So it's a big idea. It's significant in the Christian life, and it's, for all intents and purposes, what God has told us is His will for us. So what does it mean? To be made holy is to be set apart, to be set apart for God for a particular purpose, to be cleansed and transformed morally, and to be consecrated for His use. And so it has a couple elements. One is is that we are separate and different, not in arbitrary ways like we wear funny shoes, but in significant ways like we're different than the world around us. And that happens because God has transformed us and cleansed us, and now he's going to use us to do something. That's this idea of consecration. It's a part of of setting apart things for special use. In the Old Testament, that's kind of a ceremonial term. You would talk about the priest, the implements that were used in the temple worship were consecrated and set apart and made holy for a particular purpose. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives really important clarity around how this works. And he uses in verse 20 the illustration of a great house. And he says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. You pause there and think about a great home in the first century 
in a Roman city. It would be a compound. Um, they wouldn't have running water running through it, so you'd, you'd have a number of different kinds of vessels in the home. You would have china, things made of silver and gold, useful for, for large formal celebrations. You'd have daily kind of dishes that you might use, and you'd also have bedpans in the home. And, and what Paul's saying is uh, there's all sorts of, of vessels, some that are honorable like china and gold, others that are dishonorable like bedpans, and, and that's the illustration. Now he says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So I want you to see holiness in this context. He's saying you're going to be cleansed, but not simply so that you can be clean. You're going to be cleansed so that you can be useful for the master and ready for every good work. Oftentimes we speak of practical holiness in the church as a purely moral thing where I uh, don't do bad things and I do some good things, but the scriptures are going to say that's at least part of it, but it's broader. It's about you being useful for the purpose that God has set you apart for, for the mission he's given you, for his calling on your life. So we're cleansed and made holy but it's for a reason with an intention that we would be useful to God. So that's God's will for us. That our, that our morality and our behavior would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be cleansed from those things that are dishonorable so that we could be useful for the mission that God has given us. If you think about that process, it, it's kind of a three-phased journey. The journey starts in an instant with something called justification. It's the moment that someone believes in Jesus Christ, that he's the Son of God who died for their sins and rose again. In that moment, God looks upon us and declares us not guilty because Jesus suffered in our place for our sin and paid our penalty. So at that moment that we believe in Jesus, we are set free from the penalty of sin. It's called justification. God sees us through Jesus-colored glasses, and he views us with the righteousness of Christ given to us by Jesus because he is good, and we believe in him. And that happens in an instant. And then things end in an instant when we're made perfect. The theologians would call that glorification, where we are changed, the Scripture would say, in a twinkling of an eye, so that we're not only free from the penalty of sin or the power of sin, but the very presence and that happens in an instant when Christ returns. And so what we have is this instantaneous moment at the beginning of our journey with Christ where when we believe in him, we're declared righteous and we get this instant when Jesus returns that we become perfectly righteous and everything in the messy middle is this process of sanctification, of growing incrementally to walk more faithfully with Jesus, to reflect the image and character of Jesus, and to live out the mission that Jesus had given us. And during that kind of process, we are slowly and gradually led by the Spirit of God, instructed by the Word of God, set free from the power of sin. So justification, we're set free from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, we are set free from the power of sin. And in the end, with glorification, we are set free from even the presence of sin. And, and that's what we're walking through. And what God has said is that for this moment, in the messy middle, His will for our lives is that we would be sanctified. That day by day, we would walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus as He changes and transforms us by the power of His Spirit. That's what's ahead of us. 
Now, I want you to note that even as we read 1 Thessalonians, there's a sense that this is just a, a progressive kind of slog that's a part of the Christian life. Look at, at, at chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. So here's what Paul lays out. We, we taught you from the word of God how you ought to live, how you can live in such a way that God is pleased with you, and you've been doing that, and you need to do it more and more. And so there's that process, that incremental transformation that they're going through. Not that they're perfect, not that they never sin, but that there's a trajectory of life towards Christ and godliness that as the Spirit of God kind of shows us our sin, that the battle lines shift and we begin to move and live in greater victory as the Spirit of God empowers us as we obey the Word of God. And, and so that's the general conversation about our sanctification. But the Scriptures don't leave it in a general conversation. We move from general, be sanctified, to something specific that you'll see in chapter 4. He's going to tell us not just to be sanctified in general, but he's going to highlight a particular area that needs focus. In verse 3, after telling us that we ought to be sanctified, he says that we should abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passionate lust of the Gentiles. So I want you to see what we've done. We, we've, we've moved from a general conversation about sanctification, about faithfulness in the Christian life, to a specific conversation about sexual ethics, morality, and behavior. And I want to talk about that because I think it's important to point out that, that we zeroed in on something here. We are, are often accused, uh, Bible-believing Christians, of focusing on, on sexual sin too much in, in our conversations. Um, maybe sometimes that tr is true. I've seen some instances in which it was. I think more often than not, uh, there's an issue that we're trying to address that's very important. And so I want us to talk about why it is that the Scriptures would move from a general conversation to highlight and focus on sexual morality and behavior. I think we can see some things from some general observations about life and then jumping in particularly to what we just read in First Thessalonians. And so uh, let's talk about this from a general basis and begin with the Bible's teaching regarding sexual behavior. Here's what the Bible says, if we were to put it in one sentence. That God has created human sexuality as a good gift to be enjoyed exclusively within the parameters of a lifelong heterosexual marriage. That is the holistic teaching of the Bible regarding human sexuality, that it's a good thing to be enjoyed in the confines of a relationship of one man, one woman for one lifetime. Now, what that means is everything else outside of that falls under the category of what the Bible would call sexual immorality. So we could do a laundry list of all of those things, but it's simpler to actually just draw the circle in the center and say, this is what is acceptable, and everything outside of that, the Bible would say, is sexually immoral. Jesus affirmed the entire Old Testament teaching regarding sexual immorality as being factual and true. So it's not just something in the Old Testament, it's something that Jesus and the apostles affirm holistically. Now, within that, God is good to us, and he's giving us something good to be enjoyed and to be enjoyed in the context of a safe, secure relationship without any fear of mistreatment or abuse. That's the way that God has designed it because he is good. And the Scriptures will zero in on this issue 
because there historically has been a great deal of confusion about what the truth is when it comes to human sexuality. I think we can look around our world and see that. I think if we have an accurate understanding of the first century Greco-Roman world, we'll see that it's even crazier. So port cities would be substantially populated with brothels as one of the largest forms of industry in a port city in the Roman world. All sorts of sexual practices were accepted as normal, uh, and there was a constant kind of influx of new ideas into Roman cities. With trade really expanding around the world, new ideas and new religious practices, and along that with that, new sexual practices were consistently coming in to Greco-Roman cities. Uh, if you were to look at even Ephesus as an example, uh, they had a large celebration every year to the goddess Diana or Artemis, depending on, on what you wanted to call her, where the city would swell to be about 10 times its normal size, and religious devotion at that moment would be to go to the temple and hire prostitutes. And that was done in public in a religious ceremony and viewed as being spiritual. So when we, when we say that the world was upside down around human sexuality, it was. Not only that, the people who had come to faith in Jesus, so those who are in the church, they, for the most part, haven't come out of really good, devoted Jewish homes. These are first-generation Christians, mostly from a Greek worldview. So their perspective around human sexuality is driven largely by the Roman world that we just described. And so Paul realizes, and the Spirit of God shows him there's this great amount of misunderstanding, twisting of the truth, and confusion around human sexuality. So it's necessary to come in and clean up the mess. And we can look at our culture and go, there's a lot of confusion and misstatements and half-truths about human sexuality. And so it's still necessary to come in and clean up the mess. Historically, there's always been confusion and false teaching around sexuality. In addition to that, I think you'll note that, that sexual sin is unique in its destructive ability. It is uniquely destructive. We talk about all sins are the same, and in some sense they are, right? Uh, we sin in one way, whether it's a small lie to get a discount at Walmart, um, that seems relatively harmless. Now, if I do that over and over again, that becomes a part of my character, and it eventually leads to destruction, but the path uh, is relatively long. Sexual sin doesn't have that kind of long leash to destruction. It's relatively instant. I want you to think about this in the relationship of your marriage. Gentlemen, if you're to be uh, impatient and sharp with your wife, she'll probably forgive you, probably forgive you relatively soon. If you're unfaithful, is that going to be addressed as easily? They're both sins. Are you just, well, every sin's the same. Well, every sin's not the same. Every sin's the same in the sense that if we're guilty of it, we stand condemned before a holy God. But every sin is not the same in terms of its destructive ability. Sexual sin is uniquely destructive in our homes, our marriages, and our communities. It's uniquely destructive emotionally in our own lives. Because of that, the Scriptures will point it out and throw a caution flag up and say, hey, don't blow your leg off with this. It's a precious gift to be enjoyed, but if you start messing with it, things will go south for you. You'll note here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6, we're told that if we sin in this way, that we, that we wrong our brother in this matter. Well, the Scriptures communicate to us in the understanding of marriage and human sexuality is that our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to our spouse. 
And so if I engage in sexual activity outside of that marital relationship, even if it's before I meet my future spouse, I have wronged her in some way. And with the person that I engage in that sexual activity with, that I have wronged their future spouse and them because I have taken what wasn't mine from someone who didn't have it to give. We've wronged people. So there's a sense in which we don't just sin against God, that we sin against one another, and we sin against our spouse, our future spouse, whoever that might be, and everyone connected to that other person. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 would say it's even deeper than that, that we sin against our own bodies in chapter 6, verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He'll go on to say that we're a part of the body of Christ if we belong to Jesus, and so that our sin is expansive against only not only our bodies, but the body of Christ. And so I want to just zero in and let's just be honest and say that sexual sin is destructive far more than other things. And so it's not that we're picking on people when we point this out. It's not that the scriptures are fixated on something in some strange way. It's rather there's a recognition of how human relationships work, how the spiritual dynamics of sexuality function, and God in his love for us warning us. That's why this section ends with a solemn warning. So it's different. The Scriptures are going to zero in because of that. Now, let's begin with this. Throughout the history of the church, the church has stood apart ethically and morally on a couple bases. Um, one, you can go back to second century documentation. The church has stood apart from the Roman world in, in two huge ways. One was our absolute opposition to abortion. It's been a part of the church's history as long as the church has existed. And that was unique. In fact, in the Roman world, when people couldn't afford some kind of herbal abortifacient, they would actually just abandon the newborn baby in the streets, just lay it out there in the street and walk off. And and the historical record says that the Christian would come by and take that child and raise it. So our value of human life and desire to protect the unborn and the weak is is kind of a hallmark of, of who we've been since the beginning. And second to that, Historically, the church has had a strict sexual ethic that has communicated the plain biblical teaching that the only acceptable expression of human sexuality is in a committed heterosexual marriage. And that is a unique attribute of the Christian church since its inception and has always been something that has made us different from the world around us. We say, well, I don't know that that makes us different uh, because, you know, throughout uh, Christendom the last few hundred years, uh, everybody kind of accepted Judeo-Christian ethics around sexuality. Well, kind of, with a nudge and a wink. So people said, of course we believe that. Of course we believe that. But you've got to understand that the pornography industry didn't get big because there was no demand. It was demand. Because what we said we believed and the way we lived in America and the West was different. Even if you go back 150, 200 years, you'll, you'll find... Uh, philandering to be normal amongst the well-respected families in America and Europe. People who, who held the ground as, as Christian men and leaders, reality was different. What has happened, though, is our culture's kind of tacit approval to Judeo-Christian ethics has gone out the way. And we find ourselves in a world that maybe looks more like the New Testament era 
than what we are used to. And so it's a difficult spot for us to be. But we have to begin, if we're going to navigate that, with this understanding. These are our sexual ethics. These are our morals. They are not shared universally. I want you to, to note this if you look with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 again. He's going to draw a contrast. The Scriptures are going to say this is how you should live in verse 4. And then in verse 5, we'll say, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So the expectation is that the Christian will live a life of moral purity when it comes to their sexuality, progressively being sanctified and pursuing Jesus, and that those who don't belong to Jesus will not pursue that. Because our understanding of what's right and appropriate sexually is driven from our understanding of who God is and God's design. So point A for us, if we're doing the connect the dots, is that God has created all things for his glory, including us. And sexuality as an element of who we are is also intended to glorify God and is glorified when we honor him by committing to being sexual only in our marriages. So this Point A is who God is. Point B is a commitment around honoring God with our sexuality in our marriages. Now, we can't expect someone who doesn't have point A to make their way to point B. Nor should we attempt to to force them. They simply don't believe what we believe. And I point that out to say that these are our ethics and they must be lived by us. Historically, we ought to be used to being out of step by now. We ought to be used to the fact that that we're called to be holy and set apart, which means a fundamental difference from the world around us. We can't be the same and set apart simultaneously. So if we embrace this idea of being set apart for God and his purposes in the world, we have to also with that embrace the idea that the world won't come along with what we believe on some things, that we will be out of vogue and out of fashion frequently, particularly around the issue of sexuality. When we talk about being holy, we mean standing in contrast to a world surrounding us. So the question we have to address is what do we do What do we do in the midst of this world that is confused about human sexuality with this teaching from God that that tells us how sex is to be enjoyed and in what confines and that we ought to live consistently to that as a holy people? Let me give, give you just a few thoughts about what we don't do and then some things about what we do. Uh, the, The first is this, is we don't assume or demand the world embrace our view of sexuality. They're not going to because they don't embrace our understanding of what is ultimately true about God. So we can't expect someone to go to point B if they're not with us on point A. That not assuming is important. We can't assume that the messages our children get are going to be accurate or even remotely similar to the truth. In fact, we should assume the opposite. We shouldn't demand that people who don't believe what believe uh, with pretense or lip service, pretend that they do. It's not reasonable of us to do that. The second, which I think is incredibly important for us, is that we don't give way to the world's ways either. We don't give in. We don't change the truth. We don't say, did God really say that? We don't play origami with our Bibles to make them say something they don't. We, we, we understand what the Bible says, and we as a people of faith are not authorized to embrace anything other than what it says. And the Bible's clear that God has created sexuality to be a relationship between a man and a woman in the context of committed marriage. 
So we, we don't assume or demand the world embrace our view. We, we don't give way to the world's view and go along to get along. And third, kind of the conclusion of that is that we don't use coercive means to force our view on others. What good does the kingdom do if non-believing people pretend to believe what we believe? And what good does it do for a non-believing person to do what we do? One of the conversations I was having afterwards was a conversation um, with a friend who had read a book by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield, who's an incredibly insightful woman, uh, was uh, very deep into the, the lesbian community, lived that lifestyle for years, became a Christian. Now, God sent her on a completely different path since she became a follower of Christ. And she says something important. She says, I think in the church, we believed that the greatest sin of a homosexual was their homosexuality. But the greatest sin of all of us is our not believing in God. And the reality is that if any of us were to turn away from just our sexual sin and not turn to Jesus, our eternal condition is unchanged. We haven't been forgiven. We've cleaned up a little bit, but we haven't changed anything. And so what we don't want to do is, is force people to pretense, believing that that somehow does something for either them or the kingdom. So what do we want to do as people called by God to be holy, to embrace this mission? The first is that we live and teach the truth. We live and teach the truth. We don't say one thing and do another. But our, our sexual ethics and our sexual behavior should be linked. It should be the same. It should have integrity. And then we communicate the truth. And I want to give you some context in which it's important to do that. One, we live and teach the truth to our children. We can't assume that they're going to pick up the right messages from cultural norms anymore because they won't. The messages that they're going to get will be inaccurate, false, and twisting of the truth. That means we don't get to outsource teaching our children about sexuality to health class. Now, there's nothing wrong with them learning the information. That's biology, but that doesn't teach them the spiritual design behind it. We don't outsource this to the youth pastor because it's awkward for us to have this conversation. Do we want youth ministry to support what parents are doing? Absolutely. But this falls first and foremost on moms and dads teaching the Word of God and how to live to their children. Not just telling them, but living in that way. Sons seeing their father look away when it's appropriate to look away. Daughters seeing their moms avoiding trash like Fifty Shades of Grey. These are important steps, not only us teaching the truth, but living the truth in the context of raising our children. Second, we, we teach and live the truth before new believers or those who are uninformed or struggling. Just like the church at Thessalonica, where there's a lot of people coming out of a culture that was kind of messed up around sexuality. Most people coming to faith in Jesus today are coming out of a culture kind of messed up around sexuality. So there's a need for truth to be communicated in a loving, accurate way. Third, we need to teach and live the truth to those who are considering the gospel. Those we have conversations with about who God is and his relationship with us. We don't want to bait and switch. We don't want people believing that they're going to come to Jesus and kind of keep this on the side, that everything comes before him and he's Lord of the whole deal. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to walk away from some things that you hold dearly, but it's better. I know it doesn't feel that way right now, but it's better, and that's the message. And we teach and live the truth in a way that is obvious to the entire world around us as a testimony of the grace of God. But we do that in gentleness and humility. 
Our attitude and our love for other people should be so apparent so that when those who call us bigots or hateful because of our stance around sexual ethics would look foolish in light of the way that we love them. The goal for us as a church has always been to be salt and light and never been to bring shock and awe, and that must permeate who we are. Let me say this, and I think this is what maybe tenors the entire conversation for us as as Christians. Is it, we've grown up in a place that has become increasingly confused around sexuality. And and I'll just be honest, I I don't think very many of us could really say with, with authenticity that our slate is clean in this area. That, that we'd never struggled at all with lust or any sexual sin, that we're completely clean with no history or baggage. And in that reality is the understanding that our God is a God of grace. That our God is a God who forgives. That our God is a God who cleanses. That nothing that you have done or that has been done to you is enough to separate you from the love and grace of God. That God's grace for me when Jesus died on the cross was sufficient for all of my sin, even the ones that are deep and dark and I don't want to share with anyone, even the guilt and shame that I might have carried for years because of it, that when Jesus says it's finished, that he meant those two. And the reason that's important is, one, we we have an understanding of God's goodness and we can let go of that shame and enjoy him and his love for us. And, And two, we embrace people who are struggling with the same things that we've struggled with, with gentleness and humility. Because we understand that there's nothing special about us that has made us a child of God. It's because Jesus is good. He's indescribably good. He's unexplainably good. And we don't deserve any of this. And that's got to tenor the whole conversation for us, guys, because I'm telling you, there is a desperate need in our communities for the truth around sexuality for the truth that God set these parameters not because he's mean, but because he's good, because he desires to protect us from the carnage and baggage that sexual sin brings into our lives and our families, and the regret that we will carry for years. Regret that God is good enough to redeem and restore through his grace, but can be avoided if we walk faithfully with him. God has called us to be steadfast in purity as the church. And that's a challenge that the Spirit of God is able to equip us for. I want to pray. I want to pray and ask God's blessing and protection on us and on our families and our marriages, and then we'll worship. Father God, we thank you that you're good. Father, I thank you that in the midst of all this mess and confusion around sexuality that's been seemingly going as long as this world's been spinning, or since the fall at least, that you have spoken with clarity and grace to us that you've given us a good gift and that you've given us parameters to protect it and our enjoyment. Father, I thank you that all of your restrictions, all of your guidelines you have given to us because of your love for us, not to rob us of our joy, but so that our joy may be full. Lord, I thank you that your son came to bear the weight of our sin and transgression and that by his blood and our faith in him, we've been forgiven of all sin wiped clean. Father, I pray that as we seek to walk with your son faithfully, that you would empower us to be steadfast in purity. 
and that you'd give us the strength not only to live that way, but in grace and mercy to teach and communicate the truth in the midst of a world full of confusion. Father, I pray for our single people right now. I pray that you would strengthen them. This world is full of of enticements and temptations. I pray that you would give them a spirit-wrought strength and conviction to walk faithfully with you. I pray for our marriages, Lord, that you would guard and protect them, that the carnage that sexual sin wreaks on families would not be seen, that you would protect and strengthen the men and women of our church, Lord, so that your son would be honored in the way that we live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.